Welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration tips from top professionals in the field. Today, we have a guest I've been looking forward to interview for some time, Eric Flint. As for his intro, I'm going to take a really big breath and have at it. He received a master's in history from UCLA. Despite those academic credentials, he spent the next quarter of a century as an activist in the American trade union movement, working as a longshoreman, truck driver, auto worker, steel worker, oil worker, meat packer, glass blower, and machinist. Eric's writing career began with his first place win in Writers of the Future, Volume 9 in 1993 with his story, Entropy and the Strangler. He then went on to write his science fiction novel, Mother of Demons, in 1997. He has co-authored novels with David Drake, Dave Freer, and Mercedes Lackey. His alternate history novel, 1632, was published in 2000, has led to a long-running series with many novels and anthologies in print. He's written a number of science fiction and fantasy novels and now has more than 60 novels in print, as well as many pieces of short fiction and dozens of anthologies, which he's edited. He was also the editor of the online science fiction and fantasy magazine, Jim Bain's Universe. Eric is also the publisher of Ring of Fire Press and the Grantville Gazette Electronic Magazine. He became a Rise of Future judge in 2010. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. So, um, with all that background, how did becoming a writer enter into your plan of future for your for your life? Well, how did you decide? To I actually started there. I was writing science fiction beginning when I was thirteen years old, um, and I wrote a fair amount as a teenager. Many years ago, I lost it years ago, but I had a handwritten two-page uh, rejection letter from John Campbell for a story I sent in when I was 15 or 16, or forgotten which. Um, and I continued to write in college, um, but then I, uh, once I left college, I got I got politically active in the trade union movement, and that was kind of all-consuming, so I just basically stopped writing for about 25 years. Um, I, couple of, there were a couple of brief stretches where I'd go back and do some writing, but for the most part, I really didn't do much writing between the ages of early 20s and mid 40s. Um, and then when I got in my mid 40s, for one thing, the, the, the life of a political actor is pretty tiring. Um, I mean, for one thing, you're always broke. Um, and I, I, you know, and I just decided that that the one thing I had always wanted to do, going all the way back, was be a writer. And I had one novel in particular um, that I'd started and, and really thought a lot about, and I just didn't want to be on my deathbed and and regret the fact that I never tried to finish it. So I started writing again, and. Um, the story I submitted to the contest um, is is actually an episode in that novel. It, it wound up being published in a companion novel, but it was part of the same story. And I looked at it and figured that if I sort of nipped and tucked around the edges, I could turn it into a pretty good short story. So that's what I sent in. And that won first place in the winter quarter of 92. Uh, in the Writers of the Future contest. Uh, and that's actually how my career got started. It was then published in the uh, volume nine of, uh, you know, of the, every, every year the, uh, the Writers of the Future contest comes out with a new volume. And yeah. I was in the ninth volume, which came out in 1993. I then finished the novel that I had wanted to finish, the one that I that I based, the, that I, the story was a, part of. And by then I had an agent because she, uh, partly because winning the contest gave me credentials. And also she just liked the novel, but she warned me it was going to be hard to sell because it's a peculiar book. It's it's hard to describe. It's kind of a surrealistic fantasy. Um, and is that the first one you published? Is that the one that um, it, 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 the Mother Demons? No, that no, no, no. That Mother oh. Demons. I'll explain. Mother Demons is actually the second novel I wrote. The first oh, novel okay. became 
well, it became two novels eventually. One of them was Philosophical Strangler, and the other was Ford the Mage. The short story that I that I submitted to the contest wound up being the preface to my novel, The Philosophical Strangler, which is actually where I'd always intended it to be. It's just, you know. In any event, um, what happened was I was getting quite a few rejections, and and they were kind of odd rejections. It wasn't so much that people didn't like the novel. It's just that it, it, it didn't suit anybody, which didn't surprise me because it's, it's, it really is an oddball book. And so I eventually told my agent, Shauna McCarthy, I said, Shauna, just take it off the market because there's no point just racking up rejection notices. Um, and in the meantime, I'd written a straightforward science fiction novel, which was Mother of Demons. I wrote that in the fall of '93, actually, right after coming back from the uh, from the contest ceremony. I started working on it, and that was actually the first book I sold was Mother of Demons, um, and that came out in 1997, in September of '97. So that was actually the, my second novel that I wrote was the first one I sold, uh, which is a point I make to new writers is the best way to get published you just keep writing because you really don't know what's gonna strike or what's not so uh, right. don't get obsessed with your first book just write it send it in and then go if you can write one novel you can write a second anyway that's how my career got started it was uh, it got started with the contest and um you know, and then it went from there, of course. But, uh, but that is where it got started. Oh, good, good. So now, when you went to the uh, the workshop in the awards event, anything in particular that stands out as uh, memory of it? Either friendships well, I made, never or was able to go to the workshop, John. Um, the problem was back in those days. You guys changed it, but back in those days, you were moving around the time of the award. Um, yeah. For many years now, it's been set at a particular time. But in those days, it was moving around, and and uh, I was, uh, you know, I was working in a factory, and and factory jobs, you don't just take a week off. You know, I mean, you got to put in for it well ahead of time, and it's based on seniority, et cetera, et cetera. And um, Dave Wolverton was the was the coordinator of the contest, and, and I said to Dave, I need to know what week you guys are going to do it because I have to put in for my week off. And he didn't know because I haven't decided. So I finally said, give me your best guess. He did. That was the week I put in for my week's vacation, and then it turned out to be the wrong week. So I just wound up coming out for the ceremony on the weekend. So I never was part of the workshop. Got it. Are any of the other winners there? Did you, you know, for the day or two that you were there, did have any of those relationships maintained since? Oh yeah. I, I am, I have remained uh, good friends with uh, Stoney Compton. I won first place winter quarter and Stoney won second place. He came up to me and he said, I want to see who beat me up. <laughs> Tony and I became uh, became friends. We've been friends ever since. Um, I actually wound up helping him get his, his first novel published um, at, at my publisher, Bain Books, in Russian America. Um, and... Um, yeah, as a, as a matter of fact, I did an interview with him a couple months ago, and he talked all about you and just like how, how much of a uh, friendship that built up and how you'd helped him. So, yeah, now we've been yeah, friends that, for, oh, God, what is that now? Getting close to 30 years. And uh, and I now, uh, I actually publish uh, several of his books as a publisher. Um, yeah. So Stoney I've, I, I've, and I have, have remained in touch ever since. The one other person, I'm not in regular contact with him, but I do run into him periodically, or used to before the pandemic at conventions, is uh, he's become a well-known writer. Uh, he's Australian named Sean Williams. Um, and I've been in touch. I've run into Sean. 
Um, the other. He's a judge too now for Writers of the Future as well, like yourself. Okay, yeah. And other than that, I, I had contact with a few of the other people for a while, but, you know, it's been a long time. I mean, it's. Yeah, for sure. I was just curious because a lot of a lot of of the winners have said that they're they make friends that last for their you know for lifetime friends. So I was just curious if how that yeah yeah no yourself. Estonian has been it's lasted ever since and to some degree with Sean. But um, and over the years I just lost touch with the other people. So. Yeah, understood. Now one of the things that you do a lot of um, writing of is alternate history. Now, obviously, you have your master's in, in history, and I'm assuming that had a lot to do with it. And reading 1632, the fact that you were so involved with um, unions and then all the different trades you were part of, and they stand, they shine bright in your story. How did you come up with that? And was that well, by design? Or was it kind of like tripped over it? That particular story, that novel, 1632, which then spawned a huge, sprawling series, um, it's set in northern West Virginia. I'd lived there for uh, about a year and a half back in the late 70s. Um, and uh, I was active in the trade union movement there. Uh, that's actually where I worked as a glassblower, um, which was kind of an interesting experience. It's, uh, it's kind of died out now in West in that part of West Virginia. But when I was there, it was still active. It was very old-fashioned kind of glass bone. But I, I got to know the area quite well. And um, it, it struck me in the back of my mind, I didn't really think much about it, that, that one of those small, they're very working-class towns, mostly coal miners, would make a really great collective protagonist in a story. But I could never figure out the story um, until many, many, many years later. I, I just wound up doing research for a different, for another book, uh, which wound up actually never getting written. Um, but I wound up doing research on the Thirty Years' War, which I hadn't studied since college, and it, it struck me that that setting would be perfect for for that town that type of town so that's how the, the thing got started it's I, I have a lot of experience with that calm working class people who don't usually appear much in science fiction and they appear much more often in, in in the books i write as far as the history goes i you know i majored in history i was i was shooting for a phd i wound up deciding not to, I, I was at the stage they call ABD, all but dissertation. Um, and I just decided at that point after three years of grad school that I, I, I kind of lost, I, I had planned on becoming a college professor, but I just wasn't interested enough anymore. So I, I left, but I retained my interest in history. That hasn't changed at all. And so I wound up my first novel, Mother of Demons, is a science fiction novel, but if you look closely at it, it's kind of an alternate history. And about half the plot is based on episodes in the history of Bantu Southern Africa in the 18th century, which is what I specialized in. Of course, Americans don't know anything about it. My friend Dave Freer was born and raised in South Africa. He recognized it. So I just wound up using, even when I write a um, science fiction, I, there's always a very strong historical aspect or component to what I write. And one of the things I like to joke about is that a history degree is considered financially one of the most useless degrees you can possibly get. But <laughs> I've done quite well. <laughs> You have indeed, but you've taken it and, yeah. and used it. Yeah, I mean, I've done fine with it, uh, which just goes to show you really can't predict where your life's going to go. But in any event, that's, that's you know, the, the, my historical interest and background shows up all the time in, in all kinds of different ways in, in books that I write. Sometimes yeah. directly, other times just indirectly. You don't see it necessarily on the surface, but it's there underneath. Yes. Now, when I'm checking uh, 
on research before this uh, interview, there was a comment made about you know the similarity between Mark Twain's The Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Did that have any influence on you, or was that something that you'd read earlier that kind of like it, made a connection? Not really. I'd read it, uh, and I quite enjoyed it. Um, but it's a type of alternate history, but it's also fantasy. And the book, the alternate history had a much greater impact on me in terms of shaping my own career later on was actually um, another one of the great classics is uh, L. Sprague de Camp's Less Darkness, uh, which is a novel about a archaeologist who the cab did exactly what I did. You just come up with a MacGuffin to explain the time travel event. And, you know, and it's like, just take my word for it. It happened. Uh, (laughs) I came up with a four page explanation involving a kind of cosmic catastrophe. He didn't even bottle it out. He just had a lightning bolt strike the guy. And the next thing that happens is the guy looks around and he's in, in Rome in the sixth century, uh, after the, the, the barbarian conquest, the Goths are running Rome now. And it's exactly the same period starting Belisarius. And I wound up writing an alternate history of years later based around Belisarius, not taking place in Italy, but. That's a whole series that you wrote, right? Yeah, it was David Drake's called the Belisarius series of six volumes in it. Yeah, that was uh, early in my career. Um, yeah. Belisarius has always uh, been an historical figure that's done very well in science fiction. He was the model for uh, Isaac Asimov's Bel Rios in the Foundation trilogy. He's kind of a, such a fascinating historical figure that, that several science fiction writers have used him at one time or another. Um, but it was right. really much more Sprague de Camp's novel than than Twain's. Twain's is a lot of fun, but it, it, partly it's comedy and partly it's uh, it's it's kind of fantasy. And whereas what the camp wrote was much more straightforward. I mean, it was just, you know, there's a time travel event. This guy, he's just an archaeologist. I mean, he's, he's, you know, Mouse Padway is what he's called. He's not any kind of hero. He just happens to know a lot. And he winds up back, you know, 1,500 years earlier in history, and he starts having a real impact on history. And that that's more the kind of thing like this. Okay, I get that. Now, one thing that I'm not sure if it was something that you wrote in, on your um, website, but there's the fan involvement for helping to direct future points or aspects of the 1632 series, how, how does that fit in? How have you used your fans' input and stuff to help? Well, the way that happened was that um, when I started writing 1632, um, I was discussing it with my publisher, Jim Bain, and I said that one of the problems is that you have to know all kinds of things that are not necessarily related to each other. And the amount of research was looking awfully daunting to me. And Jim suggested, because Bain Books had, a, had then, still does, a very active website of its own where, where fans would come and, and talk about books. So Jim suggested, he said, why don't we create a conference, we'll call 1632 Tech, and just throw out to people your questions and get input from the fans and help from them. So I thought it was a great idea, so I started doing it. And then what I discovered was the best way to do it was as I wrote a chapter, I would post it in Bain's Bar, as it's called, and get reactions from fans, including one of the reactions is if they spotted something I said that was incorrect, they'd correct me and say, no, it doesn't work that way, do it this way. So right from the beginning, there was a, and they got, people got really interested in it. So we wound up having hundreds of people participating in it. And uh, that's how I wrote that first book. I mean, it was with, you had this constant daily, weekly fan involvement with the book. 
one thing it did was it boosted sales enormously. I mean, that, that book, did, oh, no doubt. that book did really well. And there was a built-up audience waiting for it when it when it came out. Um, yeah, but it also generated this huge amount of fan interest, and a lot of people were sort of kicking around story ideas of their own. So I discussed with Jim Bain. I wrote the first novel myself, and then David Weber and I wrote the second novel together, 1633. And that boosted it even further because David is a very well-known science fiction author. And then what I suggested to Jim was we do an anthology of short fiction set in the series. But we do something very unusual. We would commission about half the stories from established authors. Uh, you know, a sort of traditional invitation-only anthology, but we would open the other half of it to submissions from fans. But they'd have to do it through Bain's uh, website. You know, I didn't want to have just have people sending stuff over the transit who had no knowledge of what the series was. So we got about uh, over a hundred stories submitted that way, and I selected eight or nine of them, and we wound up publishing them in that first Ring of Fire anthology. And the anthology sold extremely well. And people kept writing fan fiction. And, you know, I looked at that, and I suggested to Jim, I, I said, would you like to try the experiment of creating an electronic magazine where we would publish fan fiction, and you know, we'd pay people. And he said he thought it was an interesting idea, but he didn't want to himself get involved. He'd been a magazine editor earlier in his career, and he said he just didn't want to deal with running a magazine again. So he said what he would do is he would lend me the money to set it up, and then you know I'd pay it back, which is how we did it. Uh, the Granville Gazette is actually my magazine, not paying books. Um, I paid Jim back a long time ago for, for the money allowance. And right. we started, originally we were just publishing them on, on an occasional basis. And we were, we, there was no regular publication schedule and we were we were paying on a semi-pro basis. We were paying people money, but it wasn't rates that would meet what Science Fiction Writers Association considered professional rates. Although people did get royalties from it, and they wound up making quite a bit of money on the back end. And then after a few years in 2000, in May of 2007, I decided we had enough steam going that we could turn it into an actual professional magazine. And I discussed it with uh, Paula Goodlett, who wound up becoming my first editor. And we launched the Gazette. As a, as a real professional magazine in May of 2007. And it's been recognized by the Science Fiction Writers Association ever since as a qualifying venue. Uh, and we are now up to issue 92 or 93, I've lost track. Uh, what's interesting about it, John, is that it's, it's to the best of my knowledge or anyone else I've ever talked to, it's the only successful literary magazine in science fiction or any other genre that's based purely on a literary property. In other words, there have been other successful magazines, but they're always based on media properties. You know, Star Wars or Man from Uncle had a magazine for a while. Uh, this magazine, even Ellery Queen's magazine, you know, there were always TV shows based on it. So it's it's maintained that kind of interest for God, what is it now? Um, Fourteen years are going on. That's impressive. What happened eventually is that Bain started reissuing. The magazine comes out six times a year, every two months, and and every maybe two and a half, three years, Bain Books will publish a paper edition anthology. Um, of sort of the best stories from the magazine for a, a stretch of time. So this stuff keeps getting reissued. And as of now, the 1632 series has uh, somewhere around two dozen novels published by Bain Books. It's got um, 
12 anthologies of short fiction with two more coming out this year. And then starting a few years ago, I launched my own publishing house to handle sort of spillover because there were long running stories in a magazine and we just didn't have room to fit in an anthology. So yeah, I wound up talking over some people and we realized, oh, we could just publish it ourselves. So that's how we set up Ring of Fire Press. And then what happened after a few years, we looked at it and said, well, we actually have a publishing house now. There's no reason we have to restrict ourselves to 1632 material. And so as of now, we are publishing a new book every week. Um, and it, it's, it's spread far beyond the 1632 series, although we still publish a lot of that. But for instance, David Brin's starting a new uh, a young adult series that he's publishing through us that'll start uh, next month in February. And Steve Sterling's got a trilogy he's going to publish through us. And, and David Gerald's published a short novel through us. So, you know, it's become a real publishing house, which is kind of an interesting experience too. Now, is that something you're the actual publisher, or is that under, or is that part of um, no, I'm Bain? I'm I'm the publisher. It's not Bain distributes them for me. I mean, they're one of the distributors. The main distributor is Amazon, but yeah, but no, I own that. That's that's uh, well, my wife and I. That's that's our publishing house, and uh, we're I think we've published about seventy books by now, something like that. Wow. Well, we're coming out with a new one. That's very impressive. Plus, with your writing schedule. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it just, I wound up, there are four major jobs liter on the literary side of being uh, of publishing. There's publisher, editor, author, and agent. And I've done all four of them, although I've never taken money as an agent, but I have helped a number of authors uh, basically serve them as their agent. I never took money for it. I just right. did it to help, you know, the favor. Usually the people that were co-authors or friends of mine. Yeah. Um, so I've gotten to have a very well-rounded knowledge of the business. Now, one thing that um, I don't want to get off before we go on the next subject here. With your 1632, like you were saying, you wanted to do something where a town, a community was a protagonist. And that was a fascinating concept because a protagonist is usually... Yeah a guy or a girl, but this is a whole community. That, I mean, that's brilliant, but how'd that come about? Well, I just, uh, you know, I, I just thought of it, this town, a town like this, would just be a very impressive collective protagonist in the right circumstances. The, the kind of funny thing about it is that after I submitted the proposal to Jim Bain and he, and he bought it, I was talking to David Drake, and I told David about it, and he said, um, have you read Steve Sterling's Island in the Sea of Time? And my heart kind of stopped, and I said, no, why? And he said, well, he kind of does the same thing with the island of Nantucket. And... <laughs> God, it's the it's the great nightmare of writers. If you come up with a story, then you find out someone else already done it. Um, David assured me the stories are so different that that it wouldn't be a problem. But I've talked to Steve. Steve's become a friend of mine, and he and I have talked about it. And what we both find kind of puzzling is we developed our ideas completely independent of each other. His book came out before mine did by a couple of years, but I mean, you know, we weren't in any communication with each other. And what we can't figure out is why we're the only ones who ever did it, because it seems kind of an obvious thing to do. But for whatever reason, the two of us came up with basically the same idea at basically the same time. And um, I don't know, but it's it. There are advantages to having that kind of a collective protagonist because you've got a lot more. Um, An infinite amount of storylines that can develop off yeah, of Yeah, well, that's the other thing, too, is that part of the reason the 1632 series has so many different... It's not a series that runs seriatim the way most do, where it's book one, book two, book three, book four. There is what I call a main line that a series which tends to follow the central characters, and you can read them that way. But the, the, the series branches out pretty early on, 
starting with a third book, in fact. And there are different storylines that go off in different directions, and they typically involve different characters. And it, it shares the same setting, and, and it's more than just the setting, because they tend to interact, you know, the, each novel tends to have an impact on another novel. But if you, the reason you can do it is because you're starting with a big collective protagonist. I mean, there's no way you can take three or four characters and do something like that. You just, I mean, without it getting ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. Now, another area I wanted to be able to discuss with you is the whole subject of, of um, team writing, collaborations, you know, working with other uh, writers on your projects. So you do quite a bit of that. Yeah. What do you find as the most plus uh, that you gain from being able to do that? What's what's the main advantage? The big advantage to collaborative writing is um, you can write a wider range of stories than you can write on your own. To give an example, the novel I did with Reich Spohr, the first novel he and I did together is called Boundary. And it's a science fiction novel. I had plotted that book out years, many years ago. It's sort of just a straightforward science fiction um, novel. I think of it as an Arthur Clarke type novel in the sense that, you know, nobody shoots anybody. You know, there's no, there's adventure and danger, but it's all just the, the natural risks of space exploration. It's not, you know, it's not uh, shoot them up. The problem was that that to write it properly, because it's a hard science fiction novel, I would the amount of research I would have had to do in fields that I'm not well versed in. Uh, history is one thing, but I'm not a scientist, and um, although I've always been interested in it, but the amount I mean, I would just look at the amount of research I'd have to do to write that book, and it was just so much that I just put it aside. And then I got to know Reich, and and uh, Reich is actually an expert in imaging, which is not what I had in mind when I originally plotted it. But I realized all I had to do was shift the protagonist to being a, a rocket scientist to being an imaging scientist, and and we could go because Reich could fill in all that. He you know he knew that stuff, right? Um, and there's a lot of things like that. That's kind of a, a sort of extreme thing where there's that much difference. But but every good collaboration, your partner is going to have different interests, different skill sets. Um, I, I'm never looking for a tweedle for a, a clone of me to write something. I mean, you know, I'm looking for somebody who's got something different. And that's the big advantage is that it broadens your your range, I'll call it, a lot. The other reason I do it is um, psychological, mostly. It's I, I'm because of the kind of work I did, you know, for first 20, 30 years as an adult. I'm used to a social work environment, and writing. There are a lot of things I love about being a writer. Top of the list is I don't have a boss and I don't have a time clock. Uh, so I don't really consider a job. I mean, it's work, but it's just, you know, I'm not regimented at all. I, you know, you got to work, but I mean, it's, I set my own time, my own hours, anything I want. But basically my job is I go down into my basement where my office is and I talk to myself all day. And, you know, I, I'm not that fascinated with myself that I want to, you know, it just, I'm, I'm sort of used to, if you're a machinist, you're going to encounter other machinists all day and you go to the tool crib and you, you know, shoot the breezes, you know, it's, it's a social environment and I miss that. And, um, collaborative writing gives you a fair amount of that, especially if you do as much as I do. Yeah, I have. I collaborate with God. I don't know how many people. Well over a dozen. So I'm interacting constantly with lots of different people, all of whom are have either started or became friends of mine in the course of it, one or the other. So it makes it for me emotionally a lot more satisfying work. 
the majority of my writing is collaborative. Um, I will say that when I get around to writing a solo novel, and I'm about to do it again uh, in a few months, it is a bit of a relief just because I don't have to deal with anyone else. I can just, you know, tell the story myself. But I, I enjoy the fact that I have a much more social life as a writer than most writers do. It, it suits me better. That's great. Now, I just want to go back briefly to the um, Rise of Future workshops. I know you didn't attend it, but you teach it now when yeah. we have our yeah. awards yeah. weeks. So what is it you normally cover when you do your... your um, Basically, your I don't, I'm not doing it the same way that, that Dave Farland or, or uh, Tim Powers do it. They're, they're there all week, and they're, they're basically running the workshop. I just come in on the... Uh, on the weekend when we, you know, when they do the award ceremony, but they asked me to, to give a class, uh, a talk every, every time I come out. And I basically will talk about whatever they want me to talk about, but usually I have a really broad range of experience with this industry, more than most writers. And so they will usually ask me to talk about one or another kind of subject of that hopefully will be helpful to new writers in orienting themselves. I don't know how to put it, but one of the things I found difficult, really difficult, when I started as a writer is you are so isolated that it's very hard to get a sense of what this industry, what's happening. I can remember when getting a rejection notice was kind of a relief because it proved that there were actually editors out there and the whole thing wasn't a cruel hoax. Because you really don't know what's happening. You don't, it's kind of a very opaque industry if, if you're a new writer and even for established writers. And so I would just try to explain to people things that are happening and why they're happening. It's very much the same thing that uh, Kevin Anderson and I and some other people set up, uh, Dave Farland set up. We have our own seminar, which we do once a year, uh, called Superstars Writing Seminar, where it, it, we're not so much teaching people how to write. What we're doing is a three-day seminar in the business of being a writer just to try to orient people so they understand what you're getting into. And that's usually the talk that Tim or, or Dave wants me to give or something like that. Okay. That's, that's because I want, you know, people are listening to this. Um, it's like they're, they're gaining understanding that you're just very diverse in your experience and, and what you've done in writing. We've talked about novels, but on uh, short fiction, obviously that's how I first became acquainted with you through your, your win yeah. in volume nine. Now, we talked briefly before this, your familiarity with Elron Hubbard's works is mostly his uh, short fiction. Any comments about that? Um, I've read Hubbard off and on for many years now. I tend to prefer his short fiction to his long form for a variety of reasons I'm not going to go into here. But partly, I, I, I enjoy his use of the English language. Just stylistically, I enjoy reading them, and I think you get it better in the short fiction than in long form. The problem with long form is is you've got to actually be a little careful because if you get, I don't know how to put this, if you get too stylistic with long form, you tend to wear people out. Uh, whereas with a short story, it's people you know you can do more of that. He also, his stories also lend themselves to dramatic presentation quite well. Um, so I've seen plays on, on uh, based on one another of his stories, and a couple, three of them I've seen at the uh, at their author services. Um, I I just, you know, he was very uh, inventive and creative, and I just, uh, I enjoy the stories a lot. Um, so how he came about to uh, to create uh, the Writers of the Future program in 1983. I mean, that's one thing when we've brought on the, all the various judges initially and then continuing to be is just uh, that that whole purpose that he had of providing that means for the aspiring writer. And then five years later, for the aspiring artist, for the creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. And, and the anthology comprised of 
newbies basically um, has remained one of the best-selling anthologies of science fiction and fantasy. So any comments about that on, on, on that aspect and also why you became a judge back in uh, 2010? Um, I became a judge. It's kind of a, um, uh, you know, it's the old story. You can't pay it back, so you pay it forward. Um, my career got started by the contest. Um, it, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that it would have gotten started anyway without it, but it would have certainly taken longer uh, and been more difficult. Uh, one huge impact that the contest had on me it's a little hard to explain but there's a um, there's a great difficulty when you're a new writer because the problem is you don't you don't have any gauge of how good you are at least that you tend to trust you know my mother always thought i wrote well um uh, gee, that's nice. Um, and so did friends of mine, which is also nice. But, you know, are they just being nice to you? You know what I mean? Um, and winning the contest, the judges, the final judges um, in the year I won were um, Larry Nevin, Jerry Pornell, uh, Ann McCaffrey, and A.J. Budras. And I did not know any of them. I never met them. I knew who they were. And so having four writers of that experience and stature, and there was never any issue that there was any personal favoritism involved. They didn't know me from Adam. Um, they just You were just a number at that time. Right, I was just a number. Um, yeah. I mean, they, they didn't know my name. They didn't know my gender. Um, and that has a big impact, at least it did on me. It just it, and and writing is like any kind of work. Self confidence makes a big difference. It really does. And and it's particularly hard as a writer because it, it's 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 a trade where you don't get that. I don't know how to put this, but I was. Um, I was joking once with a friend of mine, and and he he expressed the opinion that. He thought writers tended to be crazier than most people. And I said, I don't know if that's true. I said, what I think happens is that the nature of the work tends to make you a little crazy. I said, because here's what happens. If you're a normal person with a regular job, you're getting feedback from your coworkers, your boss, your subordinates, your customers every day. You know, I mean, you're getting a constant back and forth that helps you keep yourself oriented and know how you're doing. I said, what happens when you're a writer is you're off by yourself for months and then you produce a piece of work and you go and hand it to somebody. And often if it's a novel, or even a short story, you wait for months or even years to hear anything, and then you get a form letter rejection, and that's enough to make you a little crazy, you know. It's um, um, I don't know how to put it. It's just that you're, you're no, that makes sense. You're so detached from from what you're doing that. Winning a contest like this made a hell of a difference emotionally to me. It really did. And I'm sure that if I could get had gotten stories published, that would have done it as well. But uh, that could be harder. And the other problem with somebody like me is that I'm not really a short fiction writer myself. I do write short fiction, but I... Almost all the short fiction I write is either set in one of my own settings or, or that of someone I work with, like David Weber, or it's something I write on commission, usually because a friend of mine asked me if I'll write a story for an anthology they're putting together. But what I don't do is write a story and submit it to a magazine. I haven't done that in, I don't know, 40 years. And I really 
when I was starting as a writer, I would write short fiction because everybody told me I was supposed to. And the problem I kept running into is I'd discover every time I was starting to write a short story that I was winding up writing a novel. And eventually I just said, oh, the hell of it, I'm just going to write a novel because that's really what I prefer doing. But then that makes your isolation even greater because you can write a short story in a, in a week or two. And, uh, even if you're a fast writer like I am, a novel is going to take you months to write. So it was um, that kind of problem of isolation was even greater for me, I think, for, for most people. So, so I was always very thankful for the contest. And um, I don't remember how, how the idea came up. I, I just don't remember anymore. I think it, I, I don't know if I raised it with somebody or they raised it with me. But when the possibility came up of my becoming a judge for the contest, was it back in 2010? I, I couldn't remember what it was. It was, it was quite a way. Yeah, I, I wrote to you and we had that conversation. Okay. Anyway, I, I, I jumped for it right away. I thought it would be, uh, and I, I'm glad I did. I mean, it's, uh, it's a contest I feel very supportive of and very strongly about. It's rare to find. And um, there, there's there's no other like it in science fiction. I don't know about other genres, but by now, it's certainly the premier contest of its nature in the English language, and probably in most of you know. I can't speak outside of English, but um, but English is the main language of science fiction. So, yeah, we've had I think six winners that were. Um, where English was a second language, and then people in their Rise of the Future form actually helped them so they could take their whatever their language yeah, is and convert yeah. it to English, and they were actually winners. Yeah, no, we uh, I, actually in, in the uh, 1632 series, we published several people for whom English is a second language, it's not their primary language. And it's always, I think, a little embarrassing for an American to realize how much more capable other people are picking and learning a language. Americans tend to be terrible at it. Um, it's because we live in such a big country, so you can get by easily with just one language. Uh, yeah, I have I've published, Bain's published a Danish author, and uh, she writes in English. Is You know, it's not her first language. She writes in there are others. Anyway, so that's how I became a, a judge. And um, and I've been doing it ever since. Uh, we missed uh, last year because of the uh, pandemic. Um, but that, I think, with the vaccines coming along, I'm hoping that will be over. So with respect to an aspiring writer, because you write novels, not uh, the short fiction particularly, how many words do you have to have under your belt before you really have your own voice established, do you think? <laughs> There's an old saying that you have to write a million words of crap before you write anything publishable. That's not true. I calculated it for myself, and I figure I only had to write about 400, maybe 450,000 words of crap before I could write it. But it is absolutely true. There are a few exceptions. There are. There are a few people who are just able to write well right out of the gate, but it's not true for most people. And nothing substitutes for practice, for just writing. And uh, so the biggest advice I always give people is when you write a story, just send it off and start working on a notebook. Just keep writing. You know, don't get obsessed with promoting your work. You know, just, yeah, that's all fine. But, but the, the best way to get published is to keep writing. Um, for one thing, you don't know what you've written is going to first strike someone. And secondly, you just get better um, when you do it. Um, as far as, as I, I'm... Some writers, and writers are all different. Some writers set a very definite, you know, they will write every day and they will write 1,000 words a day or they will write for four hours, you know, whatever it is. 
I, I've never been like that. I I tend to be a uh, I tend to write in in spurts or in bursts, however you want to put it. Uh, when I get working on a novel and I really get rolling, I will write a lot in a relatively short amount of time. But then once I'm finished, I have to take time off before I start writing something else. Um, so that's how I work. Um, What's a good production day for you in terms of words output? I don't think it's not so much words. What I try to do is write a chapter a day. And for me, the average chapter probably averages somewhere around 3,000 words. So, um, but it'll vary. It could be anywhere from 2,000 to 4,000. But I think 3,000 is probably a good average. And the reason I shoot for a chapter a day is just because that's kind of how I think. I, t I just, a, a chapter for me has a, it's kind of a unit of its own. It's got a, a sort of, you know, it's got a beginning and ending of its own, and it's a good way for me to write. Um, and then when I get a chapter finished, usually that'll be it for the day. The one exception is sometimes I'm kind of under the gun. And uh, I've got to make a deadline that's a little close. And in that case, I'll push for maybe a chapter and a half a day. But I'm not really that comfortable doing that. I can, but it's not what I'm really comfortable for doing. The most I've ever been able to write in one day, and I've only done this three or four times, is um, about 10,000 words in a day. But that's working for me like 16 hours. It's just, and it's very unusual. Um, yeah. Um, but typically when I get rolling on a novel, John, I will, I shoot for a chapter a day. And the thing about it is even a long novel is going to be 60 chapters. Um, that's 180,000 words, which is a very long novel. And, you know, theoretically you can do that in two months if you keep plugging at it. I, do, I don't write every single day. I will take some time off, but, um, but when when I am really rolling a novel, I get a lot of room pretty quickly. Okay, that's good. That's that's. I always like to find out from from the, the pros to uh, to provide that you know um, a datum that other people can then compare their own production to and just see what do they you know what do they do that makes them proceed on writing their novels or their short stories. So that that's good to be able to do that. You don't do it against word count. You do against just, you do a chapter a day. Oh, you do a chapter. Yeah. Here's the main thing that a uh, main advice I give people is first of all, to be a writer, you do have to be self-disciplined because uh, the problem with being a writer is just, it's the same problem with that you have when you're trying to quit smoking. Um, you know, you know that cigarettes are killing you and, and you have to quit. Well, you don't have to quit today, you know. Uh, and and with writing, it's sort of the other way around. You know, you have to write, but you don't have to write today, you know. And and it it just starts to get easy. So you have to not procrastinate, and you have to you have you really do have to be self disciplined, and you have to learn what to be careful of because the two most insidious ways of procrastinating are world building and research and you have to do both to write a successful book but you can just keep going and going and going and you're never going around actually writing anything um so at some point you just gotta say enough damn it i'm gonna put my ass down and write the main thing i do is sit down in front of the computer and write and what i do is i just write something a sentence it's just just start writing and if you start usually you can get into it and keep going but that's the main thing is is and don't let any writer tell you there's this is the right way to do it because every writer writers are very different from each other and they'll all have different ways of doing something and you know the basic rule is just that way if it works fine but just make sure it's actually working and that you're actually getting things done Good. And that's about the best. I know that's pretty vague advice, but it's about the best I can do. 
Yeah. I mean, if you say something you got to do, you know, you get up in the morning, you brush your teeth and you sit down and type the first 50 words, then you have your oatmeal, then you have your coffee, then you write another 200 words. That's just like <laughs> balderdash. The main <laughs> thing that I do, it, 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 the thing is, it takes, it really takes quite a bit of, of, of nervous, emotional, intellectual energy to write. It does. And you sit down in front of the computer in a day and you sort of stare at the screen. And what I have learned to do is just write something. Just write a goddamn sentence and keep going. And once you start writing, I find that it, you know, at least for me, it tends to flow pretty smoothly once I get rolling. But you got to make yourself do it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's very good advice, I think. That's, that's actually important advice for the aspiring writer. So have you found that forums or conventions or media have been any uh, advantage or, or any of those things have been of, of help for you? Yeah, there's, there's two reasons to go to conventions. And one reason not to do it, and it drives me nuts when I see writers doing it, is, is don't do it to, quote, promote your work because – it's a, it's a fool's errand. You will always spend more money promoting your work than you will boost in the way of extra sales. I don't. Even if you're, you know, an author who they're the, you're the guest of honor and they're paying your way out there, which I've often been. That's great. Except I'm going to lose somewhere between five and six days worth of work going to a convention even if it doesn't cost me anything, but I means I'm not writing for five or six days and I'm losing quite a bit of money on that end. So don't do it to promote your work. I mean, you know, as long as you're there, you can do some promotional work, but that's not the reason to do it. The main reason to go to conventions is two things. One of it is just psychological for me at least, which is that, like I said, my job is to go down the base and talk to myself all day. And I find that periodically going out into the real world and talking to people I don't know and I didn't invent them and I don't know what they're going to say is just good for me. But the other reason to do it is over time you will build a professional network. And the thing about that kind of network is it's completely unpredictable how it will wind up paying off, but I've never known it not to sooner or later. Just you get to know people and um, that makes sense. And, and I think it's just good for, for writers psychologically. There are some writers who just are sort of kind of naturally hermits and don't want to do it. And it's, that's, so that's okay. But I find it's good for my mental health. Okay, good. That, that makes sense. That, thank you very much for that. So now for someone who's not familiar with your, with your writings, what do you recommend as an Eric Flint primer? Oh, um, 1632 is my most popular book, you know, so I would, you know, that, and it's a very good novel, so I would, you know, that's one. Uh, another one I think is very good, which is a, it's an enjoyable read, is a novel called Boundary, which I wrote with Reichs for, and it's the first of a, of a series of novels, so if you like it, you'll have things to go with. I've written a lot of novels with Dave Freer. And what I might recommend there would be to start with Pyramid Scheme, which is kind of a, our, uh, it's sort of David Mize's homage to uh, L. Sprague de Camp and, and Fletcher Pratt's Incompleted Chatter Stories. It's kind of lighthearted fantasy, sort of fantasy, and it, it's, I think, very good. My first novel is a very good novel, Mother of Demons. And I wrote a novel with, with Kathy Wentworth. I'm very proud of it. I think it's a really good novel. It's, it's a straight science fiction novel called The Course of Empire. Um, and that would be another one I could recommend. And, you know, there are others, but I think that's, I think I gave you five. That's, that's a good opening line. Yeah, I mean, obviously you don't write bad books, but just a, a way to, to start to get familiar with you. Yeah. So now, how do people find you on the internet? I just, um, well, you can find me on Facebook. I have an active Facebook page. I, I'm there pretty regularly. I have my own website, but I'm less active. I mean, I don't show up there. They were near as often as I do on Facebook. Um, probably Facebook is the best place. It's just 
quick and easy for me to do it. Um, so just Eric Flint on Facebook? Yeah, just Eric Flint. Or is it Eric Flint 1632 or something like that? Or is it just Eric it's Flint? Just, my personal Facebook page is just Eric Flint. I, I know I also have an author page, but you know, I, I don't actually run those. It's, it's okay. Um, you know, sort of my minions do. Uh, okay. And, but so Facebook's one way. Um, um, Bay's Bar is another. You can go to Bay's website, I, I show up there also. Um, well, that's good. So Facebook, I mean, pretty much everybody's going yeah, to be yeah, able to, to find you out there. I, I, I'm posting there several times a week. Uh, okay. Uh, well, that's great. Well, thank you very much for this interview, Eric. Oh, it's been... Um, I appreciate your inviting Yes. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Owen Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Eric. Yeah, 